0: It's a gruesome story, no doubt about it, retold in detail and embellishments throughout the millennia that followed it, but for just about everyone telling the story, the story of the death of Jesus Christ, is not a horror story or a cautionary tale. It's a story of triumph and love. So where's the love in it? What's the point of it? God coming to earth only to be cut down like this? Now I've heard explanations for it, but they don't seem to add up. A divine father needing to see the suffering of his son to appease his own anger toward the human race, it doesn't seem to make emotional or practical sense. Tonight we're going to look at a different theory, one that explains not only the suffering of Jesus, but the ordeals of a long line of prophets before him, and looks at some of the spiritual mechanisms of what being saved from sin really means. And along the way, we'll try to uncover evidence of what we're all looking for in this story—triumph, hope. And love. Stay tuned. Hey
1: everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborg and Life. Thanks for coming out. Today we're going to be asking the question, why did Jesus Christ have to suffer and die. My name is Curtis Childs, and I'm gonna be the host for this show. And we want to look at the story of the crucifixion here today. And why does this story have such intense subject material? If it's the story of God coming to the earth, why doesn't it just go, "Oh, everything went right because it's God, and God can get done what God needs to do." And Even if Jesus needed to die for some reason, why all of this mess before it? Why all this suffering? How is this about love? How is this about God? How does it make sense? How does it belong in the the holiest place in the discussion of, of the greatest things of life? How does it all make sense? Well, it has a lot of people interested, right? People are talking about this story, a lot of people hold this story as very precious, and Swedenborg did too and he he also asserted that this is a essential central story to the human the story of humanity but not because it's a transaction or a mediation Meaning that there's nothing, nobody paying something for somebody else in this story. Nobody placating an angry party against an offending party. So yes, that does mean we're going to be looking at a different interpretation of the meaning of the crucifixion story. And you may at home be saying, you can't just make up new stuff about the Bible. You can't just insert a new narrative. And to try to appease you on that, I'll assert two things. One is that everybody does, and the other one is we're not. We're not. Everybody does. So what does that mean? Let's look at this one first. Everybody does. The nature of this story in the gospel is they are ambiguous enough that everybody who's putting together a package saying this is exactly what they mean, they're doing some emphasizing of particular passages. For example, penal substitution theory, which is the big one right now, they'll take passages like these ones, emphasize those. I'm not saying it's it's necessarily a bad thing to do, but they'll say this is, expl- this is what sheds light on the rest of it. Here's how you get to the, the narrative, right? So we're just doing that same thing. We got our own passages that support what's going on tonight, and you'll see them right here, and then we'll get to those a little bit later on. But And Swedenborg, when he's going in and explaining, he says, hey, I, I actually visited heaven, I've seen Jesus, I've talked to the angels, this is what they say that means. He wrote a book explaining it, and this book of his, which is called The Lord, which is means Jesus Christ, um, he really, really, really quotes the Bible in that. In fact, huge swaths of that book are just straight quotations of the Bible to show that this narrative he's presenting is evident in the text. Do you know how much of this book is actually quoted right out of the Bible? 55%. Oh, really?
0: Yeah, for real. 55% 55% of the words in there are straight out of the Bible. Only 45% are things that Swedenborg said. So you'll have things like a page spread where the only words on it from Swedenborg are from Ezekiel and from Daniel. In fact, there are like 16 quotes on every single first edition page on Wait, average. Jonathan, that's right. we got to get to the, the show, okay?
1: That's right. Thanks, man. Episode. Thanks, man. Scholars, right? So the point is... Swedenborg was all about the Bible. We're not deviating away from it, making up something new. We're looking at what's already there and adding, of course, uh, this new insight. But it's not that we're just making something up out of nothing. Or Before, I said we're not introducing something brand new into the Bible, because Swedenborg's theory of atonement has a lot in common with the Christus Victor theory of atonement, which was the predominant theory in Christianity for like a thousand years. So a lot of people have thought this way. We're going to look a little farther, a little deeper, and see if we can't get something that speaks to us all about love and shows this amazing connection between God and the human race, and explains why all this drama. Why did it have to go this way? All right, we've got our technicalities out of the way. Let's get into some more technicalities, but hopefully ones that introduce us to this fascinating narrative that, that explains everything we've set forward thus far. We're going to begin in part one. To me, this is the most fascinating part of the Swedenborgian explanation of the story. It's the mechanism of being a prophet. And what that means, because Jesus, while he was this unique phenomena was also a prophet. He was in this line of prophets. And if you've ever read the the Bible, you'll know that the prophets all go through strange things. And Swedenborg says it's the life of a prophet to fulfill particular roles that need to be fulfilled. And this is from Swedenborg's book, The Lord, number 15, where we'll kick it off. What do we got here today? There are people in the church who believe that through his suffering on the cross, and Swedenborg is talking when he says in the church about the Christian church of his day, so Protestantism, uh, believe that through his suffering on the cross, the Lord took away our sins and made satisfaction to the Father, and by doing so brought about redemption. However, he's saying that's not the case. There is a different case. The true meaning. Of his carrying iniquities is that he was subjected to severe trials and endured being treated by the Jews the way the word was treated by them offensive yeah, so you if if you read Swedenborg, you will find that he refers to groups of people with blanket statements. We had a problem in another episode where he talked about Catholics in the same way uh, and That's how he does it. You're going to find it when you get into the books. I would like to point out that he's talking here about the leadership of the Jewish Church in that time. Because you'll see all throughout the Gospels, Jesus constantly arguing with the scribes and Pharisees. That was the leadership at the time. Swedenborg is making the point that because the leadership had become so corrupt, they had actually destroyed the ability of their revelation. Uh, you know, of the scriptures, to lead people to good lives. They've taken the church, which was supposed to be this thing that helped all people, instead bent it to their selfish ends. And so because of that, you're going to hear about the impact that that had on Jesus and on his mission. So, you can cringe a bit when he says that, that's just fine, but just know that's what we're talking about here. The leadership, it's not all Jewish people, all the disciples, everybody who heard, a lot of people who heard Jesus' message were Jewish, and they got it right away. So, I digress. Uh, and they dealt with him in that way precisely because he was the Word. Remember, Jesus was the Word made flesh when the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, right? Jesus was an embodiment of this Word, and because the church had perverted the teachings, so they, the way they attacked the teachings, the way they attacked Jesus. And We're going to see more about this in a second. The church among the Jews was in utter shambles at that time. It had been brought to ruin by their perversions of everything in the Word to the point that there was nothing true left. As a result, they did not recognize the Lord. This is, in fact, the intent and meaning behind each detail. Of the Lord's suffering. And we're going to be getting to the details in a second, but that's enough to to set it up that Jesus was fulfilling a representative role. That This is part of the explanation, is that he was showing, he was showing a truth about the way that the state of religious truth at the time. And this is something that all the prophets throughout the Old Testament did as well. Have you ever read about the prophets? They have weird lives. I mean, they get strange bizarre, harsh commands, go do this. And why? What does it do for them? Well, Swedenborg is saying that it does the same thing that Jesus was doing on in their own scale. In case you're not familiar, let's look at a couple of the prophets and what they had to go through here. We'll begin with Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel 4, 1 to 6, take yourself, a, this is, Ezekiel is being commanded by God to do this. Take yourself a brick and put it in front of you and carve the city of Jerusalem on it. Take yourself an iron griddle and put it as an iron partition between yourself and the city, and set your face toward it, and let it be for a siege, and tighten the siege against it. Lie on your left side and place the iniquity of the house of Israel on it. According to the number of days that you lie on it, three hundred and ninety days you will carry their iniquity. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side, for 40 days." So th- talk, there's some suffering, some assigned suffering. It's not quite getting crucified, but if you're going to have to lie on your left side for more than a year, and then when you're done, oh yeah, flip over. Do the other side for 40 days. What was the point of it all? Swedenborg says that all of this was this correspondential representation and embo- or embodiment of what was going on with spiritual truth at the time. He breaks it down like this. He says that the brick that Ezekiel was supposed to have was an image of false ideas created by people instead of God, because bricks are non-natural objects. So this was showing this inaccurate body of teachings that people had begun to live by. Jerusalem, that he carved on it, that's a symbol of the church, and the besiege uh, that it was besieged is that the church was besieged by these false ideas. So somehow some religious concepts had gotten in there and were destroying the, the whole ability of the church to do what it's supposed to do, which is bring love and heaven on earth, right? So this iron partition was the hardness of their hearts, blocking the words divine information. So that's the emotional side of it. The lying on his side was the word debilitated by evil and falsity. So he was sitting there for all that time Even the number of days was significant, showing just how badly, you know, we human beings had screwed up spiritual things, that we were taking what was meant to be teaching us how to love one another, how to live better lives, improving society, making it more heavenly, and instead we had distorted it and and brought it so far from its purpose that it was turned on its side and and rendered impotent. And that is what he was doing doing, and that's why he got this command from God, so he could be a visible outermost representation on this thing, of this thing that had been going on in hearts and minds. He's not the only, oh, Swedenborg says, uh, before we move on from him, in the Lord 16.3, by carrying the iniquities of the house of Israel and the house of Judah in this way, the prophet did not take them away and thus atone for them, but simply represented them and made them clear. And we'll be getting more to that uh, with Jesus. But this is not just Ezekiel and Jesus. Every prophet gets stuff like this. For example, we've got Jeremiah. He was told to buy a sash, don't put it in water, bury it, then go dig it up many days later, and the sash was ruined. Now, it's not having to lie on your side for a year and change, but it is ruining a piece of cloth, and it's strange, right? But Swedenborg says this symbolized that the words truth in the church would be gradually ruined by external reasoning. So superficial thinking would destroy it. Moving on, Hosea. God said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife. Oh, this is... Sorry. This one is is huge life decisions uh, and involving other people. So this is actually g- getting pretty serious here. Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of her harlotry. For the land commits great whoredom by departing from the Lord. Hosea 1-2. So Hosea has to go say to somebody, hey, um, um, can we do this for a very strange reason? And it's obviously probably not what he imagined his life being like, but... There was this need, and you see it there in the text saying, go do this strange thing, this uh, disruptive thing, and here's why, because people are being like this. So this symbolized that the people of the church had falsified the word because they were not devoted to the divine love that was contained within it. So they strayed from love, just like he was straying there. Now, there's one more we want to look at. This is John the Baptist. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. John the Baptist was a rough, sort of bizarre guy, and Swedenborg says this symbolized the, the literal sense of the word, which prepared the way for the divine inner meaning and in life within the word. So John the Baptist, we end on this one, because John the Baptist was strange and abrasive, because just like the the text of the Bible is strange and abrasive, that that he's preparing the way for Jesus like the outer text can prepare you for the inner sense. so he's representing the very words they're talking about. Him. So we just tell you all this because Jesus was part of this mechanism. The prophets go through all these things because there is this importance of having um, the things that are spiritual, the things in the hearts and the minds and the church and the practice of people, those being actualized or represented on the lowest level. It's almost like street art that people would ask these prophets, what are you doing? And then they would explain it's a way to get the message out, look, we are causing damage and you wouldn't see it unless it was represented. So Jesus' suffering, which more extreme than anyone who came before him it had that same meaning to it. You might think of the suffering of Jesus, the crucifixion and the capture, as being something that just happened out of his control, that it just was the mercy of the people who, um, who were punishing him, it was just the whims of the people in charge of him, but this is providence, that every detail he went through, every little thing, it's not just you need to just suffer a lot and then die, every little part of it is doing this, fulfilling this same prophetic Role. Swedenborg gives explanations of it. Here's a list that Jesus is suffering. Uh, Oh, right, first we have a, a little description of why this mechanism is in place. The prophets suffered in much the same way because they represented the Lord's Word, and therefore His church. And the Lord was the quintessential prophet. So, too, wherever prophets are mentioned in both testaments, it means the body of teaching the church draws from the Word, while the Lord as the supreme prophet, means the church itself and the Word itself. So, if the pro- other prophets are in smaller ways representing the violence done, to spiritual principles, and to the love that is supposed to drive the human race? How much more so is Jesus representing the entirety of the damage done at one of the worst times in in human history, spiritually speaking, according to Swedenborg? So again, these details uh, of the the crucifixion scene, here's what they mean. So Jesus went through a lot of stuff. We've probably heard it before in the Sunday school or seen like the Passion of the Christ or something. He was betrayed arrested and condemned, and that symbolized that the Word was being betrayed and condemned by the church. The Word is meant to be something that the church takes and studies and uses to live to be a blessing to the world, to be a blessing to the human race, but instead the leadership was taking it, using it to make it only serve them, making it arbitrary, making it impractical, making it loveless, and in that way they were betraying the mission that they had. Further, you had whipping, spitting, And or whipping, striking, and spitting at him, all these have meaning. The true concepts in the word were being assaulted. So just like the things about love and truth that were written and were meant to be lived were being swept aside in favor of pure ritual and in favor of sort of class system uh, and and manipulation, so Jesus was attacked. And that all these ways of attacking are the different facets of that, uh, of that defacing of the word. Going on, This crown of thorns, you see it here, very famous imagery. The people of the church were falsifying and contaminating those true concepts. So the true concepts that are meant to be the crown of the church, that this this is what enables us to use the, this spiritual practice to change who we are, to help make the world a better place. Instead, it was something that not only didn't look beautiful, but actually harmed, and harmed the head, you know, which is a symbol of the, sort of, the, the seat of life in somebody. That's how deadly this had become, and, and how much was lost compared to what it could be. Continuing on, The divide, oh, this is, then the garment stuff is fascinating. So the dividing his garments means they had destroyed the connectedness of the concepts. Everything in Revelation is meant to be one whole. Right, that, that you learn this and it all goes together into this lifestyle that, that, um, that fluently makes it so that in every aspect of your life you're getting better and better, but instead they like compartmentalized it and just put, here's your religious life, then you go do the rest over here, and that this thing doesn't really talk to this, and these, this is separated from love. There was all this tearing it, tearing it asunder, and this is what tearing up the garments was like, but they did not divide, as we'll see in the next slide, the inner tunic. That was not divided, and that symbolized they couldn't destroy the connectedness of the inner meaning. Swedenborg says there's this outer meaning of scripture that can be used to support all kinds of bad stuff, and we've, we've seen everybody doing that throughout history. But the inner meaning, this, the meaning that we were delving a bit into here, uh, that we've delved into on in other shows, they can't tear that up. That's why in the story they instead cast lots and one person took it. It's because that's symbolic too, right? Okay, I think that that's interesting. Next. We have, uh, they gave him vinegar to drink, right, instead of water. They were only offering things that were distorted and false. Water is truth. You're supposed to be refreshed and nourished by it, but instead you get this vinegar, which is, it looks like liquid, but it's bitter and it doesn't hydrate you. It's a terrible thing to be offered if you need water. But that's all the church could be giving was these false ideas. Continuing, then we have the crucifying itself was a symbol of the total destruction and profanation of the whole word. That there had been this huge loss of potential, and that this ultimate destruction of the body of Jesus Christ was a symbol of that. And finally... Yeah, the piercing of his side, which is a, they completely stifled everything good and true in the word. So every little detail meant something, and it was all allowed to happen because it would let Jesus fulfill this role—the role of a prophet and the role of, as Swedenborg said, the quintessential prophet. Now it's obscure, it's strange. I think it's it's a cool idea, but it doesn't fully explain w- why Jesus was here. It's an element of it, but. What about the whole, like, taking on sins and saving us? What does all that mean? Well, we're going to be looking at that, at the atonement side of things. uh, And how does that fit in, in part two? So did, did Jesus come to pay the price for our wrongs? Meaning, were we all... In great debt to God, and then Jesus got us out of it. Uh, According to Swedenborg, not quite. This is from the Lord, number 18. He says, it is believed in the church that the Lord was sent by the Father to make atonement for the human race. It is quite, it is quite true that we all would have perished if the Lord had not come into the world, but this was not a matter of retributive justice since that is not a divine attribute. Justice, love, mercy, and goodness are divine attributes, and God is justice itself, love itself, mercy itself, and goodness itself. Further, where we find these, we find no vindictiveness and therefore no retributive justice. God does not care about getting even. There's no way that God could be in a position where he says, well, it's you have done such wrong that I just have to make the score even, or I can't help it. There's no, there's none of that tit for tat with God, according to, to Swedenborg. God is infinite love. God has truth, right? God understands the harm that things do, but is not interested in saying, well, you did this, so we've got to even it out. There is no uh, keeping score with God. So Swedenborg sets up an alternative. He first lays out, what he says the church in his time claimed was the purpose of the the atonement, or the model of atonement. And it's one that we do see some Christian churches currently pushing as well. So let's take a look at what that was. He says that there was uh, evil in the human race. From original sin, people continued to sin after that, and you just, through this sin, racked up this massive sin debt right? We'll just put an arbitrary number on it, 6446. Pretend that it's way more than anybody could ever pay, and this was just the, the amount of transgression in front of God we had done. We were unsalvageable because of, of our evils. So, God notices this, and he's up there, and Jesus is up there, and, all right, well, I don't see any way to save him, or in some theories, Jesus is the one who wants to go first. So, you go down there, son, and if, if you pay their price then okay, maybe we can work something out. So Jesus comes down, he's on the cross, and because he's so perfect and he's able, he's worth those 6,447 debt modules, and through that, now the human race is clean, because Jesus took it on, Jesus paid it. And the way that that act is there's, you know, this sort of grandfather clause that even if you come after and you're still sinning, because you still have this sinful nature, but if you just hear about it and you believe it, then you're saved as well. Because you enter that original transaction and Jesus can absorb you because he, he's got so much credibility with God. Swedenborg says, that's not how it goes. You can't have a God who needs to be placated like that. You can't have um, a God who is that score-oriented, that that it's, okay, somebody's got to pay for this. You can't have a God that's divided like that, where where God says, okay, I'll be up here, you go down there, pay for it, okay, great, you you affected me in this way. That, according to Swedenborg, goes all against the nature of one loving God. Um, infinitely wise God who treasures the the creatures that he created, you know, uh, us included. So Swedenborg offers this alternate explanation for what the whole scene meant and what the players in it were. So you do have, it does start out very similarly, you do have the human race absorbed by evil, but not because of uh, an original sin, but because the desire for dominion, for harming, for uh, cheating had grown so overwhelmingly powerful in the human heart that we just couldn't keep ourselves away from our base natures. This would be absorption in hell, according to Swedenborg, and because of that we were in, in danger of completely destroying the life of heaven within us and exterminating ourselves. The one God sees this, and of course knows I have to prevent this because of the misery that would come from us cutting ourselves off, even if we don't know any better and think that's what we want. So God takes on this human form as Jesus comes and lives life in the vulnerable way that we do, but with this divine soul, allows evil to come in and attack him like it was attacking all of us, but because he has this divine power, he pushes it back at every single part, and by doing that, pushes it away from the rest of the human race who is coming after us. The cross being a part of this process that he went through, because, you know, it's just one part of the story in the Bible. There's, there's many other stories. This was all part of this process. And the, through that, he has saved us all from this hell that comes not as much from the outside as from the inside. That's a short story. If you want to see a little more about it, check out our episode, Why Jesus Was Born. We talk a little bit more about the conditions that prompted him to come in and and what it's meant. So, right, even if you're with us on that, even if that makes sense, what's all this talk about the taking on of our sins? So, didn't Jesus uh, adopt our sins from us? Swedenborg addresses this in the Lord 18. He says, excuse me, the imputation of merit is a phrase without substance unless we take it to mean the forgiveness of sins that follows repentance. We are saved not on the basis of our own worth and on our own righteousness, but by the Lord, the only one who has fought and overcome the hells and who alone thereafter fights for us and overcomes the hells for us." So it seems strange. It seems like we are doing things and God is doing things. So how does it work? Well, man, we've got to hit that diagram it's the only way to get out of this. So picture us here, the power of hell is around. The Hell has power in presenting things that are actually destructive, antisocial to us, but, but saying, hey, wouldn't that be cool? And, and, and the power to get us to love things that are evil. So we're there, the divine is here wanting to help everyone bring them into mutual love and wisdom, which is heaven, but this is in between. So what Jesus did, what God did, was come down, right, and from where we were, from the very lives that we live, show us the way up through this power power of hell into heaven. and in doing so, in living that particular life with all the struggles he went through, he he built what is in essence, a ladder up through, and that he was able to create a way that not just he went through, but that we can go through, right that, that he created the steps of repentance that then we can participate in. And when we do, we are not just following the same path as Him, we are actually engaging with Him to pull us up. And we're going to look a little bit more at how that works in our next part uh, on how the Savior actually saves us. When people talk about Jesus Christ and the impact He had, they're not usually just talking about the impact back in the day. They're saying, this still matters now. Jesus is saving people at this time. This is a story that, while occurring thousands of years ago, is directly relevant in our lives today. And Swedenborg would very much agree with that, but, but how? How is Jesus relevant? How does it show up? Well, like we said before, when Jesus was in the world, he was fighting hell, okay? And you may not have never taken up swords against demons, but I would guess you've fought hell as well. That any time within us that we're pushing back against everything harmful and, as I said before, antisocial that comes from hell, we are doing our own little fighting for it. And this is how Jesus' great struggle with hell and our little ones intersect. So take a look at this. You have Jesus, who is, you know, came into the world and is now You know, back one with the Father is this both infinite and accessible God, and then you have us there, and we're reading our sacred scripture, and we see in there an imperative to be a better person, to try to put away the things that are harmful, embrace those that are helpful, a.k.a. repent. So we're going to do it, we're going to push harmful things out of our life, and you just do it, right? No, it's hard. It's hard. It's very difficult to make progress a lot of the time, and we can feel like this is impossible, right? And we, in our despair, can be asking for help. And because of the work that Jesus did, the groundwork that he laid, he is able to help, as it says in in the Bible. Jesus is able to help. So because of that, when we start to push back against evil, even if you don't see him, even if you don't feel anything more than some kind of, of progress or warmth, he is actually, through this human mechanism, coming in and fighting that fight for us. Because we can't actually fight evil. That's just not something you can do, especially when you, like, kind of like it, or you have, like, a propensity toward it. But, the divine human is fighting right alongside us and can do this miracle of switching self-centeredness or or a desire to to harm and be better than into love not completely eliminating everything bad but making this fundamental switch so that is the process of Jesus saving us individually and it's not something that comes without our effort but it is something that comes through the power of Jesus so it's like both are happening simultaneously. Jesus is saving us and doing the work, but we are also not just out of the equation. We are not just lifted out. We have to be putting in the work as well, and there's this partnership here, right? So that's what the the taking up of sins means, and Swedenborg comments on this in the Lord number 17. He says, if these things had not happened, meaning the things of the events of Jesus's life, including the crucifixion, no human beings could have accepted anything divinely true that dwelt within them, let alone anything divinely good, because the devil, who had the greater power before these events, would have snatched it from their hearts. Again, he says the devil with a capital D. It's not really, according to Swedenborg, one, one person, check out our show, is the devil real? Rather, it's the summation of all hell, of all evil and falsity in the human heart and mind. But the point here is that Before Jesus did this work, the pull, the draw of evil and distorted thinking was so strong that people never would have resisted it. They wouldn't even have wanted to. But because Jesus got down in there and did that dirty work, we now have this sort of space in us where we can... that's... that's not good. I don't want to be like that. That's Jesus Christ inside of you. If you want a little bit more on the fight, that Jesus had with hell. Check out our show, The Spiritual Battles of Jesus Christ. We talk about all of his fights, even the ones going on when the crucifixion was happening. That All that work is how he built the ladder. It's, you know He really was a carpenter in that sense. It's not as easy as just a couple of uh, steps, though. There's, there's a lot of work that went into that, and we could do more in another show. But for now, we've just established that that's what he was doing. However, there's a couple of points, if we're looking at the the gospel stories to get this, there's and, and the, the material that follows. There are a couple points that are made there that we gotta address if we're gonna go around having a show about the totality of Jesus. You gotta take this into account. So, for example, what does the taking away of sins mean? You know, it is he is described as taking away sins specifically in the book of John 129, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, "Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world." So, what's the interpretation? What does it mean he takes away the sins of the world? Well, according to Swedenborg, the, the, the meaning there is not just taking away the sins through the suffering on the cross, that you did the suffering, so now we don't have sins, but it is, uh, according to Swedenborg, that Jesus takes away our sins when we believe in him and live by his commandments. So this is a process. It this doesn't mean there's nothing about instantaneous and effortless there. That there is a process but it comes through us doing our own version of the struggle. Believe in him and live by his commandments. Okay, I can get live by the commandments. But what does it mean believe in him? Isn't that what's what's so important? Uh doesn't isn't uh, believing in the Lord what matters? In fact, we got a question from our audience uh which is Addressing that very same thing. He says, Isn't believing in the name of Jesus Christ the crucial thing? If not, why does John 1 12 say, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name? That's from Bible readers everywhere. I mean, we didn't actually get that question in particular, but you know, uh, people, we made that one up, but people ask that, and, and religious institutions ask that. There's a worldwide question around so what, what is this? What does it mean to believe in Jesus' name, and Swedenborg gives a, a very succinct explanation in Apocalypse Explained 295, to believe in the name of the Lord signifies to live according to the precepts of his doctrine. Because it's not believing in Jesus like, oh yeah, I, okay, I, I think it really happened. I, I, I think it happened. It is, if you believe in something, you do it. If you really believe in a movement, you don't just study it and learn it, you go and you'll make it your life. And if you really believe in Jesus Christ, or you think this is of the utmost importance, you will actually take what he said and do it, and take the life that he modeled and try to live it like that. That's what it is to believe in the name of Jesus. And it's, it's intentionally set up as something that is not effortless, or instantaneous, or a one-off thing you haven't experienced, and then it's done. It's something that, like everything else in life, you got to work at it. you got to work at repentance. This is from the Lord, 17.3. Reason alone should convince anyone who is the least bit enlightened, Swedenborg, he's a bit harsh, that sins can be taken away from us only by active repentance. That is, by our seeing our sins, begging the Lord for help, and desisting from them. And if that seems a little extreme and a little self-condemning, remember that the point is just simply... To be focusing away from what's harmful and focusing towards what's good and swedenborg describes this in the lord
0: 18. both the lord himself and his disciples taught repentance and the forgiveness of sins we can see from this that we are saved if we are focused on good and loving actions that come from the lord and on truths about faith that come from the lord we are not saved if we are wrapped up in ourselves
1: Don't get wrapped up, instead be focused on good and loving actions. That's the message. That's the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to give the pathway that allows us to, if we do focus on good and loving actions, we can become freed of everything we want to be freed of. You think about everything that drags us down in life, everything that drags the human race down. And we think we'd be so much better off if nobody was murdering each other, if people were not warmongering with each other, Jesus is giving the opportunity to that through not just, hey, sign here and it's done, but I gave you the path that you can go work on, right? And I did it through being willing to take on unimaginable suffering on myself, not just because to show that I'm macho or to get you to feel sorry for me, because that's exactly what needed to be done. And God's love is such that if something needs to be done, he doesn't care what the cost is, we're going to, he's going to save us. So, I think that that's pretty cool, and I think that's a pretty cool interpretation of it. Let's recap really quick, What for, just so we remember what we did say about this story and the meaning of it. So, first of all, while different than any person who has lived before or since, Jesus was also a kind of capstone for a series of prophets, and he, like them, represented the harm done to spiritual principles through the tribulations in his own life. He made visible outwardly the chaos that had been going on due to bad religious dogma and attitudes. While Jesus' death did have a great impact, it wasn't to appease an angry God or instantly siphon our evils out of us. It was a part of his ultimate victory over hell and a paving of the way that does save us from our sins if we opt to follow it. Being saved from sin is the end result of an active process of slowly and daily choosing good over evil in our lives. And though it might seem unremarkable if Jesus hadn't had his spectacular journey, we wouldn't even have the option. And to believe in his name is to do what he taught and to live by what he stands for. So there's the meaning of the the crucifixion. That's why Jesus suffered and died, because there's so much good that was going to come out of it, that it was going to not just help people then, but help people now, help people in the future, to create, even though it was a path through darkness, it ended up with love, it was the ability for all of us to seek love, to walk away from what's harmful and towards what's heavenly for all of us. So that's the meaning of the story, that's the meaning of the words, and hopefully we've given you a new perspective on the the nature of God and the nature of that story, and even on the words themselves, in the, the telling of that story, in the Gospels. So we're going to give you some text from the Bible here, in sort of a closing meditation. And this is, some of it's from the New Testament, some of it's even from the Old Testament, because Swedenborg says that, like that garment was supposed to be one, even the Old Testament is describing the things Jesus went through. It's all part of one story. And so we have some from there that that we're told represents what Jesus was going through when he was going through his difficult things in life. So we're just going to give you these quotes, and with this new understanding of them. Just see, what do they mean to you? You don't got to think about it too hard, don't got to analyze it. Just see what comes, and how is this telling us? Even though the language may be woolly and confusing like John the Baptist, where's the, what's the message of love behind it? What does it mean, and what does it mean to each of us now? So take a minute, relax. <music> That last quote, take heart, I have overcome the world. The world being not just the the, the planet that we're on, but the outermost part of us or, or the part that could be out of control and just how am I ever gonna get past this? Don't worry about it. I have overcome the world. So it doesn't maybe not all of those hit it for you, but if even if one did, Swedenborg says that's how you get to the, the internal sense is just approach the external sense of the word with the right attitude, which is you know how how does this make me a more loving person? And the wisdom inside you can, can find it. So that's our show. Thank you so much for hanging out. Really appreciate it. If you want to do more research on this, check out the book The Lord. You can download it for free, for very free, on swedenborg.com as an ebook or pdf where you can order a paper copy. And in there he goes into much more detail on the meaning of Jesus and what that was all about. And as we advertised in the beginning, a lot of Bible quotes in there. Thank you for hanging out. If you enjoyed this at all, please like and subscribe. And if you didn't enjoy it, please like and subscribe. Just as a favor, and if you want to make this kind of programming possible, a donation, would really be nice because that's how we get things done so we're going to take a look at our short clip on why we ask you for money and then we'll do a Q&A period just like we always do. Alright, so I'll see you on the other side.
2: We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone anytime they need them. That's why we offer Swedenborg's books as free downloads on Swedenborg.com and we produce this show and other content on our Off the Left Eye YouTube channel with no paywall or ads. The only way to keep this up, though, is for those of you who like what we're doing and feel comfortable giving to give. If the idea of helping others have easy access to the content we produce feels meaningful to you, please consider supporting this cause with a donation. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins.
1: All right. Time for the Q&A. We tried to make this show as confusing as possible, so hopefully we got some questions out of you from it. Let's take a look at the first one and see what you had to say. This is from Melody Moments. I find that the churches of today are beseeched by many false ideas. How can we find the truth in their teaching so as to bring us together with fellowship and the Lord? There's got to be some false ideas because you've got a lot of people saying opposite things, right? And even within, I don't, I can't think of a single church organization of any religion, really, that doesn't have people, not that I know that much about it, but, uh, but the of the ones I know, even within it, there are people uh, polarized on ideas, there are, there's much interpretation, there's such a swath of different interpretation of ideas. How do you pick up the good ones? Uh, love, love and truth. You know that if if an idea is making the people who have it nicer than they would be without it, or it's leading to good things, there's something true in it. Even if the idea itself is not totally accurate, it still is true enough. It, that Swinburne says the whole point of knowing anything is to have it lead to us to be better people. So, and, and that people who actually have false ideas in their mind, if they're following them for good reason, out of out of a desire to be good, within reason, I mean, there's certain ideas that are just really bad, um, you can be, they can be actually forming heaven inside themselves based on that. So I would say like, I, I feel like I, I don't know if we could ever really pick out every single idea. Is it true, is it not? In the mindset that we are, I think you can get to a level in which you can, Swedenborg says, you can get perception, which we talked about a few episodes ago, where you just know instantly, is this thing true or not? But for the rest of us who don't know what's going on, look at this, if if an idea is making people more fun to be around, you know, if it's making them a better citizen of the human race, then there's something true in it. And if it's making them, you know, abrasive and, and, uh, and, and causing all kinds of division and split, that idea could be true and could be that we're just not ready for it, but it's a red flag. You really gotta... The, the the bar is higher for that idea now if it's causing suffering and, and antagonism. So those are a couple of my thoughts uh, on obviously what's a big question. Let's look at the next one, David. One question that I've asked myself over the years is why did Jesus cry out, God, why have you forsaken me, why dying while while dying on the cross? And we covered this. I, I believe in our show either one of the, one of those two shows that I showed today. Uh the Spiritual battles of jesus christ and um and uh, uh why Jesus was born, I will say something about this unless i'm unless i 'm greatly mistaken. This is quoting the Old Testament it's quoting a psalm, I believe, so this is showing that the life of Jesus Christ was fulfilling all this stuff in the Old Testament, and that according to Swedenborg, even though Jesus was God, Jesus went through this process of being vulnerable. So that at times, he felt just like you and I feel, which is, where's God, you know, even though he was God. But he, he did that intentionally, because part of the, the fighting hell is despair, and being put into despair. And unless he was able to experience that, like we do, which is a pretty good trick when you're God, to be able to make yourself experience despair, that you couldn't be uh, accessed by hell in the same way. Not to mention, according to Swedenborg, at that point, even heaven was saying, like, we think you screwed this up, like, like, why'd you come down and then this was happening?" So a lot of emotion in those words, but those are a couple of thoughts, uh, according to Swedenborg. So it's, it's a great question, and meditate on it, and, and there's more, probably more truth in there than you can un- that you can uncover uh, on your own. So great, thanks David. Let's take a look at a third one. Jason, are there any offspring of Swedenborg who still carries out his work? Who are they? No, Swedenborg did not have any kids, um, and he didn't have any disciples meaning i don't think i don't think anybody who was he didn't have people hanging around with him that he taught, and then they went on and started a church from that. That he was, it seemed like his mission was, I'm going to write this stuff and try to get it out there. He gave it to a lot of people. There's a couple, I'm thinking of like Dr. Bayer, there's a couple of people who knew of his stuff, and then were doing some things with it, but all, but all the major um, groups of people that were following him picked up his work afterwards. So you don't have like any direct disciples or descendants of Swedenborg who are carrying on his work. So it's up to you. It's up to anybody who can find it, feel like, hey, this is, like, just like the first question, how do you know if it's true or not? You notice this has love in it. This is unlocking the mysteries of life. This is doing good things. And in the capacity that it is for you, go on and share it and and learn and try to see the world that way. And if you do, pick up your own insights. And in that way, it's up to anybody who feels like it's a match in the heart, to continue the work as best as they can, and we're, we're trying to do that in our own little way on this show, but anybody can pick up the keys and, uh, and try to do it on their own, and, and I say the more people doing that, the better, because any of you are going to see it in a way and understand it in a way that I don't, and so I'm going to get to learn from you on it, and, and hopefully we can continue to bring things out of it that do make us better people to be around, and, and somehow try to help the human race and, and bring, bring heaven into it. So, a couple of thoughts on that. All right, let's look at a fourth question. Cody, my uncle has been diagnosed schizophrenic. How can I get him to realize that he is something other than the violent voices in his head? Please help. Yeah, that. So we obviously did a couple of shows. One is called "How to Deal with Evil Spirits." The next one is called "The Lies, Evil." Sp- or I mean, the, um, "How to Free Your Mind from Hell." Then we did one called "The Lies, Evil Spirits." Tell us. Um, Oh, we did a we did a, another one a, a, another couple recently. Uh, do spirits play a role in addiction? Um, where we do talk about we we interview some people who who believe and and read from some others who believe that these violent voices in people's heads that's hell that we all have hell around us, but for them it broke through some kind of membrane. And they can hear hell now. As far as getting somebody to to have any kind of separation whether or not they believe in an afterlife just to say oh i'm not my thoughts that can be really tough to do from the outside and it's you know very difficult to do if somebody's not willing to uh you know be open to that so i can't say oh just go do this because i don't know the situation i don't know your uncle i can just say that's tough and And, you know, it's probably time, right, that at a certain point, he may be willing to consider it. But in the meantime, you know, gather a coalition of people that are able to manage the situation, you know, friends, relatives, loved ones who are able to make sure he's safe and everybody's safe. and, And people who are the closest to him can be the ones suggesting, you know, hey, can you can you loosen your your obedience to to this stuff? But you know, obviously you got to have medical professionals in there and all that. And I you know I can't make that call, and I, I know that you're not asking me to individually, but it's really tough, and um, and I don't know. And I would really ask other people who have had someone they love in that situation, what was the best thing to do, what helped, and and um, I feel for you. And I, and I hope that um it turn that he starts to feel better, and that that, that you know anybody else in the family is. Is uh, able to get through and and and, uh, have strength in that time. So uh, thanks for being willing to to share that here. Uh, We got time for for one more. Vlad, what are Swedenborg's ideas on the hereditary sin? How does it work? Are we really responsible of our ancestors' sins? This seems unreasonable and not something God would allow. Great question. It's not, it's not that we're responsible for their sins it's not that we're responsible, there's nothing, it's not like they've done stuff and we we show up with a bill, you know, uh, now we got to work our way out of it. All Swedenborg says is just like we have physical heredity, meaning your genetics, that I, the reason that I look the way I do, no comment, uh, is because of the way that the genes that came from my parents and the genes that came from their uh, it, back into your ancestry, it all comes down, and, and the, the genes that survive, and the people, that all makes you who you are. That same thing is happening on a spiritual level, except everything in the spiritual level has to do with choice. So every individual in, in my life, I'm, there's certain things that are harmful that I'm embracing more than I should. There's certain things I'm rejecting. There's good things I'm doing. All that goes into making what I pass on spiritually. So over the, the millennia and the generations, um, you gain this, there's this sort of amassed spiritual heredity. So, we inherit not particular sins, but tendencies towards things. Some people have struggles that that they just seem to, I I just can't stop wanting to steal things, or something like that, that other people don't have at all. They have other tendencies. So, you just have a tendency towards something, and if you So you just have a harder struggle not acting on those particular things, and God knows that. And like we said before, God is not interested in retributive justice or evening scores or that sort of thing, so God knows you got a harder time with it, but it is going to be in your life something that you struggle to get away from. That's your own little battle with hell. And it's not just hereditary that we struggle. We can pick up other bad things in life that, that our family never had to deal with, but that we've thrust ourselves into. So there's a struggle. You Also, there's hereditary good as well. You can have tendencies towards things that are positive. So it's just that this is your spiritual template. And so, so some people are going to have things that are difficult that are not difficult for other people. It's not... Um, have I given... I feel like I've hopefully d- described the mechanism a bit. Um, I'll watch the tape later and be like, no, that wasn't it. But that, so that's it. It's, you get from spiritual genetics, as if you will, tendencies towards particular things to avoid, particular things to gravitate towards. So that's sort of your starting point. From there, it's not like you got to become perfect. You just got to try to go a little bit up from where you are, make it a little easier for the next generation. Don't pick up new bad things. And, and remember, Life is tough, we're just doing the best that we can. According to Swedenborg, the chapter title of one of his uh, books is, it's not as hard to get lead the life of heaven as people believe it is. If you're making an effort, remember Jesus Christ, we said in this episode, is there with you, making that effort, and God has the power to do away with anything evil. So it's just about us making that effort, saying, hey, I want to try, that's good enough. That starts us on the path. It's not, that, not, not impossible. So thanks everybody for the questions, and um, I hope my answers were entertaining at least, but it's, it's just fine that it's good to think with somebody about it and, and, you know, talk to each other about it as we all try to develop our little steps of repentance and, and sort of walk the big path uh, that Jesus Christ laid out, you know, according to, to Swedenborg. So that was fun hanging out, and uh, what are you doing next Monday? If you want to hang with us, then we are going to be doing a show where we look at 10 early signs of a spiritual awakening. How do you know you're having a spiritual awakening? We're going to look at what, what Swedenborg went through as he began to you know, wake up in, into his sort of spiritual revelator phase. So if that sounds interesting, check us out same time next week. I'll see you then.
2: Swedenborg in Life is a production of the Swedenborg Foundation. Curtis Childs is our host and producer. Art direction by Matthew Childs. Technical direction by Stuart Farmer. Ben Keyes, visual effects technician. The content writing team is Curtis Childs, Karin Childs, and Chelsea Odner. Regular research and content support from Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor for the New Century Edition of the works of Emanuel Swedenborg, and Cara Dom, Latin consultant for the New Century Edition. Shada Sullivan contributes her heavenly voice to most of our readings. Amy Aquarola is our marketing communications coordinator. Alexa Cole is our online media coordinator. Our editor is John Connolly. The moderators for our thriving online community are Curtis Childs, Karen Childs, Alexa Cole, Chris Dunn, and Chelsea Odner. And the executive director of the Swedenborg Foundation is Morgan Beard. Special thanks this week and every week to the generous donors that make our work possible.